Hello, and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and today we are going on a side quest, or a sword quest. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Bayo. Hello. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Side quest number two, guys. Mm. This one is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a bit different from the first side quest we've done. I'm going to tell you all about the story of Sword Quest, a series of video games from the early 80s. I don't think you have to be too much into video games or a gamer at all to enjoy the story, so stick around even if it doesn't seem to be exactly your thing. To me, the story of Sword Quest is a fun, interesting story. I'm not sure what you guys will think about it, so I'm... I'm you know, I've been working on this for a while now, and I really want to share this with you guys and see what you guys have to say. Compared with the first side quest that we've done, which was about the Anthropocene, this is a much smaller story. It's a more specific story, but I, I don't know, I think it has a lot of charm to it, so that's what I'm going for here. Um, before we get into that, let me quickly explain the concept of the side quest again. So in a regular Culture Quest episode, we watch a movie, we read a book, we listen to an album, and we discuss our thoughts about it. But on a side quest, one of us chooses a topic that he's interested in, he introduces the topic to the other two hosts, and um, we try to learn something from it. We, we try to have a, an interesting discussion about it. And as I've mentioned, I'll tell you today about Sword Quest, and I've prepared a, a presentation, a visual presentation to go along with the, the episode. And you don't have to follow along with the presentation. Uh, the listeners at home, if you don't want to follow along, that's just fine. The episode will work just as well without it. But the visual aspect of the presentation is kind of fun, I think. And there's a few pictures um, that you might want to check out. So in the show notes, you'll find links to the presentation. There's a Google Slides version and a YouTube version. And I think that both of these should be accessible from any device that you may have. And uh, one last thing before we start, if you're following along with the presentation, you'll hear this little bloop sound that signifies moving along to the next slide. The good thing, the good thing about side quests is that you don't need to like do any prep for them. Like, and when I say you, I mean us as the um, <laughs> the willing subjects and also the yeah. listener. So it's it's a kind of good one. I mean, like you don't have to do anything except for like obviously you know, cultivate the life that you're going to live and sort of become <laughs> the mass of cells that you are that can is capable of listening and hearing and understanding. But the, nothing specifically <laughs> like going out and like purchasing a DVD. It's more, no, nothing it's more just <laughs> continue. So now, now you've made it to the podcast. Now you don't have to do any more prep. You can stop creating white blood cells because you've made it. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, this is the Culture Quest podcast, Sword Quest, Side Quest. Catchy. We're, we're going to run out of the word quest. We're not going to want to say the word quest anymore after this. I'm going to tell you all about the story of Sword Quest. Uh, we're going to talk about video games today, uh, which is kind of fitting. We recently played Firewatch, and we're now playing Gris for an upcoming episode. So if there wasn't the U2 episode in the middle of everything, we, we could have called it like the, the Culture Quest gaming series or something. But that's behind us now. Um, in the last few years, I found out that I'm really interested in the history of video games. And, and this is a story that, while not exactly obscure, it doesn't pop up too often. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We'll go over a brief history of, of the video game industry. We won't go too deep into this, but, you know, just to get enough to the starting point of the story of Sword Quest. We'll talk about 
what is Sword Quest? What makes it interesting? What sets it apart from other video games? Uh, then we'll talk a bit about the North American video game crash of 1983, which impacted everything in the world of video games at the time. And then we'll get back to Sword Quest and see how it was affected by the video game crash. Holy crap. I, I, I'm just watching... Uh, there's in Netflix a, a documentary called High Score. I just finished it. Really? So I just started watching it. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I've been working on this side quest. I think I mentioned it. Even when we did our first side quest, I've been working on this for a while. And... I, I last week I started working on the presentation and I you know I just went in the, into Netflix to take a break from from you know working on this and I saw a series I think it's six episodes called high score about the history of video games hmm. and uh, it felt like a, a huge coincidence I really didn't want it to be a lot about um, sword quest because we're gonna talk about it today but no they barely touched sword quest or Atari or that that period of gaming yeah so for me I just I think I watched it two days ago and and I think the first episode talks a lot about the 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 video game crash of 1983 yeah you might recognize a few names how do you like high score do you, do you like it so far um yes but I just finished another documentary on Netflix called uh, uh, the toys that made us which is just excellent i really really enjoyed it and so i think for at least for now you know i'm in the second episode of high score but at least for now the, the toys that made us is better i uh, like high score but it feels a bit um like it's made by amateurs a bit uh the texts aren't great yeah so that, that that's what you get with the toys that made us it feels really well thought cool. through yeah um, okay, so let's do a, a quick review of how video games, arcades, and home consoles became big in the 70s, mostly, um, to kind of set the scene. So the first video games were created by uh, computer scientists back in the 50s, uh, mostly for research. And if you're following along with the presentation, the image in the slide shows the game Tennis for Two, created by William Higginbottom in 1958 at Brookhaven National Laboratory. It's considered to be the first game developed for entertainment and not for research. It looks very primitive. <laughs> I like the idea of all these scientists making games and they're like, oh, what is this one for entertainment or research? And they're like, uh, researchtainment. Yeah, no, definitely research this one. Oh, yeah, this one's research, guys. It looks fun, but it's research. Yeah. Purely research. I promise. Yeah. I don't know. It looks really, really, really fun. No, no. It's tough, tough, tough work. Trust me, I'm not having any fun. And video games didn't gain their popularity until around the 70s. You know, with a few hiccups along the way, some trial and error, and just a bit of de-geekifying of the hobby, it became kind of like the video game industry became kind of similar to how we see it today it's it's been a, a major mainstream industry that offers all types of you know experiences for all kinds of people to enjoy and back in the 70s arcades which did exist prior to the 70s basically with mechanical games like pinball and stuff like that so yeah. um arcades and home gaming consoles became a, th- a thing in the 70s and slowly but surely they became an inseparable part of our lives um, Peter, you today you have an Xbox, you have a, a Switch. Barrio, you don't have a, a console, right? Mm, no. Really? I got like three years ago when I moved, I, a friend of mine gave me, I think, PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 2, with, what, which was antique already, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's still in storage. Oh, really? <laughs> I've, never, Jeez. I've never even plugged it in. 
What, huh. Have you ever been a video game guy? Or um, I think the reason I don't remember my teenage years is because I played video games, but mostly <laughs> like in a very excessive form. Okay. But first, like there weren't really good video games. Like I played a lot of Worms. Do, do you know Worms? Worms World Party. I love it. Yeah, I've heard so of it. Yeah, it, it, it's a It's an game? amazing game, but it's not like it's not going anywhere. It's just like this Worms shooting at each other. Very fun, but. I don't know. It doesn't have this big plot or... No, it's a series or, of matches, kind of. Like, every yeah. match is a few minutes. Yeah, it's, it's a turn-based. And like you would assume, if, if, you get, if you get addicted to some video game, it will be a better one. It's kind of like getting addicted to pillows. Like, <laughs> it's nice. But if you're getting addicted, get addicted to something that's a bit more exciting. <laughs> um, and, and that's about it. I think there was also a game that me and Inon played called RuneScape, yeah. which was just I've this heard of it, yeah. we wasted our childhood yeah. on that. I actually, I played it before, but I was just, um, uh, as the kids say, trash. <laughs> <laughs> we played the original, the, the original version, which was a flash 117 kilobytes file, I think. Sounds small. No music, basically no graphics, almost nothing. <laughs> yeah. And it also, it wasn't even capable of uh, being a full screen. It was no, yeah. <laughs> like you played, you played on your monitor, but the actual frame size was as about a smartphone resolution. Yeah, so it was like 30% right. of the screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, like I, I played video games, but they weren't good. <laughs> Maybe that's okay. why it didn't stick. Yeah, when I was growing up, I had a, uh, the original PlayStation, the original Xbox, and a Game Boy Color, but I had, I think, one game for each console. I basically didn't know there were other games <laughs> for a long, long time. <laughs> um, but I, I played a lot of games on the, on the uh, computer. Today, like, I recently got a PS3 and a PS Classic, but I al- almost never got to play them as well. Being adult is uh, is is horrible. Don't don't do it. <laughs> it's not worth it. Um. Anyway, in 1966, Ralph Baer and Bill Harrison. I I'm gonna pronounce a lot of names wrong probably, but anyway, um, they started developing a video game system that can be connected to a common TV set. Uh, basically the first home console, and the prototype could display two spots that were controlled by the player on the screen. Um, and in 1967, they came up with the idea of adding a third spot, um, which led to the creation of a tennis-like video game where each player controlled a dot, which served as a paddle, and the third one was the ball. Is that Pong? Uh, it's a precursor to Pong. That's Pre-Pong. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, in 1971, that system was licensed by uh, a television company called Magnavox, and in 1972, the system was released as the Magnavox Odyssey. At launch, this system had 12 games uh, built in, and each game had its own accessories. Like, you'd get, like, cards for each game that you could physically fit on the screen of the television, which added a bunch of information to to what the system could generate at the time, which were three dots and a line. Um, And the Magnavox Odyssey did not sell very well. But in 1972, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. Nolan Bushnell, he's featured a lot in that high score uh, documentary that we mentioned. They've started Atari uh, and they hired a programmer called Alan Alcorn and they asked him to recreate the Magnavox tennis game kind of as a practice. And his version proved to be a lot of fun. And I guess that copyright in the video game industry back then was different because 
They just went ahead, named their version Pong, and released it as an arcade cabinet in late 1972. And at first, it saw it, it was a limited release, but by March of 1973, it was widely spread. Like it was everywhere. It was very well received, very popular, and it's considered to be the game that created a mainstream interest in video games. And obviously, Pong's success was noticed by everyone, and a lot of video game manufacturers released their versions of the ball and pedal game, which unfortunately saturated the market and slowly led to a drop in sales, a motif that would pop up again later. So Atari and other major video game makers of the time tried creating new types of games, new genres, tried to diversify a bit, and they created racing games, dueling games, shooting games, all kinds of stuff. Some games were also licensed versions of Japanese games, which down the line becomes a, a major part of the video game industry. And I'll mention that at the time in the 70s and maybe the first few years of the 80s, the American market and the Japanese market were basically two separate things. It wasn't as international as it is today. At the time, arcades were becoming very, very popular. And something that helped the growth of arcades at the time was an effort by uh, someone called Jules Millman, which he made an effort to change the reputation of arcades because at the time they were considered to be very questionable hangout places. And Millman noticed that arcades were making money despite being located in bad areas and being poorly run. Like he realized that there was a lot of potential there. He decided to give it a go and, and because of the reputation that arcades had, it took him a, a, quite a while to find a shopping center that would agree to host a, one of his arcades. And in 1969, Millman opened an arcade in a shopping mall in Harvey, Illinois, in which eating, drinking, and smoking were banned, and there was a staff that was keeping an eye on the patrons. Mm, that's serious. Like, you can't even, um, can't even like, have a drink or something. That's tough. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you kind of think of arcades as a place for having fun, but you can't eat, you can't drink and you can't smoke what the fuck no i'm kidding um <laughs> harsh but anyway yeah <laughs> these arcades uh, were portrayed as a safe environment in which parents could leave their uh, children behind and and just go shopping and it worked millman opened a bunch of arcades in other shopping malls and later he sold his chains uh, chain of arcades which became aladdin's castle which i've never heard of but i think that I don't know, maybe if you live in, the, in, in, in America and maybe if you were part of that scene, I think Aladdin's Castle is a big name. And other entrepreneurs followed his lead and opened their own places in shopping malls. And it basically reached a point by which arcades were an integral part of a shopping mall. Like there wasn't a shopping mall without an arcade in it. And throughout the 70s, video game arcade cabinets, and, um, you know, they had their ups and downs, they had successes and failures, and all the time, uh, they were competing with pinball machines. And in parallel to that, in 1975, everyone seemed to release their own uh, ball and paddle dedicated home console. Uh, there was a Magnavox, Atari, and Coleco ones, and a few other uh, manufacturers released their own units. And for two or three years, they sold very well. And around 1977, there was a, a, a huge competition between home consoles, video game cabinets, pool tables, pinball machines, and the then new home computer systems. Were were the were the home consoles connected to the television, or were they, or did they come with a screen? No, the it, it, it's like you imagine it. It's connected to a TV, mm. to your home TV. Yeah. Like I'm surprised. I'm surprised that. 
TVs came with the, you know, with the right socket. I was too. Well, I guess there was VCRs at that period? There were. Okay, so... Maybe they used the same connectors as VCRs and beta players and... Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. like, it was the same video input. Yeah, that's a good point. And then something happened that kind of tipped the scales toward video game cabinets and home consoles. Around 1977 and 1978, Tomohiro Nishikado was inspired by a popular game called Breakout which is the ball and pedal game in which you're supposed to break lines of bricks. I think oh, that's my favorite bunch, one. That's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, there's still, there's a bunch of versions of this game. <laughs> that's that's um, legitimately up there with GTA and like um, <laughs> Mario and, you know. Peter, what do you like? like just just the pure heroine of, um, of Breakout. <laughs> of breaking honest. walls. <laughs> so Nishikado created a game in which the... It, it's basically based on Breakout, but the pedal itself was replaced by a gun stationed behind a few barriers aimed at a few rows of aliens that moved from side to side and descended towards the players. That game was Space Invaders. And it was a giant, giant success, uh, both in Japan and in America. And in North America, that game was licensed by Atari, and they released a video game cabinet version of the game, which was very popular. And they also put the game on a cartridge, which meant that you could actually buy the game and play it at home. Uh, at the time, uh, it was still a, a fairly new concept. M- most games you couldn't really take home and play. You had to go to an arcade to enjoy them. But uh, home consoles began to use replaceable cartridges, so you could play wh- whichever game you want. And the success of Space Invaders led Atari to try a new... Like, it made them want to try new and fun things, which leads us to the story of Sword Quest. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. So, the success and popularity of games at the time, like I've said, it, it allowed Atari to release a series of games that were part of something that was a bit bigger than just a few... Uh, virtual adventures. Sword Quest came with the promise of giving the gamers a chance to be an actual part of the quest and maybe even win a few coveted relics. Sword Quest was a series of games for the Atari 2600 console, uh, a series that was initially supposed to include four games, um, Earthworld, Fireworld, Waterworld, and Airworld. And the promotion campaign that came along with these games made them appear as if they were like a, a real-life quest, something that you can actually take part in, which is what made these games kind of stand out. They were part of a competition in which everyone could participate, and the prizes worth amounts to $150,000 of 1983 dollars. Today, it's almost half a million dollars, or just Jeez. over half a million dollars. Oh. Yeah. This is like Ready Player One, isn't it? Hmm. I just watched Ready Player One, and I think that the prize, if you find the Easter egg, is um, half a trillion dollars, which... Is a uh, bit more. Slightly <laughs> more, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just a few orders <laughs> of magnitude. <laughs> so by buying and playing each of the Sword Quest games, you could possibly enter into a competition with a prize that is worth $25,000, and the winner of each of these competitions would be automatically entered into a grand competition, like a grand finale, with a prize of $50,000. All of this is combined to be $150,000. Like I said, the, the series was planned to include four games, each accompanied by a comic book printed by DC. Each game and its accompanying comic book were based on a different kind of spiritual system, like Earthworld was based on the Zodiac signs, um, Fireworld was based on the Kabbalah Tree of Life, um, Waterworld was based on the Indian Chakra system, and Earthworld was supposed to be based on the Yi Ching or Yi Jing, uh, a Chinese book of changes. 
which I never heard about. The, the comic book of, that accompanies each of the games tells a story that is related to what you do in the game. And the keywords that are needed to enter the competition are hidden in the comic book. And the hints to help you in finding the, the, the keywords are hidden in the game. For example, let's take a look at uh, Earthworld, which was the first game to be released in the series. Um, the Earthworld game featured 12 rooms that look exactly the same. Each room is, is just a square, and it has four doors, uh, one for each direction. And you can distinguish between the rooms only by their color and the color wheel that is in the manual. And then you move from room to room, and some of the rooms also had mini games uh, that you had to complete. But basically, your main mission was to pick up or leave behind items that you find. There are 16 items. Eight of the items have a certain effect on, uh, on the game, like there's a key which allows you to travel across the circular rooms and not just around them. The cloak of invisibility or the leather armor help you with some of the minigames and the shoes of stealth turn off the sound made, made by your footsteps. So other than that, it doesn't have any effect on the game really. And the other items, they don't really do anything, but they are needed to get the hints. And I have to say, like, the way that the game looks and plays, if you're looking at the images that I'm showing in, on the screen, it's it's all very simple compared to today. I think the, the fact that it's so simple, but the games and the comics and the competitions are so ambitious, that's part of the charm, in my opinion. Because, like, when I first heard about the game, I pictured something much more elaborate than that in terms of the gaming experience. But the fact that it's just such a small game... I don't know, makes the story even better for me. So by placing the items in the correct rooms and in the correct orders, uh, you get hints. And the hints are like special rainbow colored screens that display two numbers. And these numbers would refer you to a specific page and panel in the accompanying comic book. What, what, is, what is the, like, how do you know what's the right item to the right room? Actually, I don't uh, have any idea. Like I watched a uh, gameplay of the game and I played it myself a bit. Uh, you can still play the games today on, on Steam. And I really don't know. Like, I watched someone playing it as kind of a, a guide for other players. And, like, he takes the Shoes of Stealth, goes up three rooms, puts the Shoes of Stealth in that room, goes one room to the right, picks up the dagger, goes five rooms downwards. I really don't know how you're supposed to know. Uh, I think is, it could This is take... what it's like when I play any video game. <laughs> <laughs> I think it could literally take days to solve it. But once you know the, the correct order, it's like... 20, 25 minutes to, to, to do the whole game. It's really not that long. Hmm. And that's a good question, though, Barry. I didn't think of that. Um, once you, you, you place the, the, the correct items, you get uh, two numbers that refer you to a specific page and panel in the comic book. And some of the hints that you get, like there's more than the number of hints that you're supposed to have to, to really get into the competition, which we'll get to in a second. But some of the hints lead to unknown answers. Like the manual mentions that some hints refer to other games in the series or maybe to something that it will be required for the final puzzle. So in Earthworld, uh, you can find 10 hints, which would lead you to finding 10 words hidden in the comics. As you can see, there's one in right here, uh, Spire. Can you see that in the wall of the tower that they're jumping uh, off yeah. of? Um, I reckon if you were like really smart, you could just read the comic book and maybe you'd be able to get the hints. Once you know what you're looking for, the, these are not too well hidden. You can find them fairly easily. Um, there are 10 words hidden. Um, these words are Spire, which is pictured here. There's Search, there's The, there's Quest, which you can see right here. 
um, in a spied tower, which is right here on this little cliff wall. There's oh, yeah. talisman, gold, and found. And the game included a form with instructions as to how to enter the competition. And according to that form, only five of the hidden words make up the answer that is needed to enter the tournament. Mm. It also tells you that there's another clue in the comic. And by noticing a clue in the first page of the comic, you can figure out which words were relevant. Uh, the clue is prime numbers. It's kind of hard to see in this image, but there's a poem in the first page of the comic in this kind of red font. And two words, prime and number, are pinkish. Again, uh, it's yeah. kind of hard to see. But then if you take the words that are, you know, that their character length is a prime number and you write them on this entry form and set it to Atari, if you send the correct five words, you would be entered into the competition. And something which Atari did, which I think is really cool, but I don't know, is that if you send them the form with your answer and had at least one word correct, they would email you, they would email you that. I don't think they would email you. They would mail you back. <laughs> They'd just get your Apple ID and then they would, you know, yeah. be pay you something. <laughs> they would mail you back an official Atari Sword Quest Challenge Certificate of Merit that had three possible levels of rating based on how many answers you got right. Um, basically, the first level is if you got one or two words correct. The second is three or four. And, you know, if you get five words correct, you'd get the, the Certificate of Merit. And you'd be, you take uh, part in the competition. I was kind of hoping you'd get like a cool beach chair or something like that. But oh, like, that would have been I guess cool. if you've actually uh, emailed, or if you've actually <laughs> mailed it in, it's hard. Uh, if you've actually mailed it in, you probably are the kind of person that would want like the certificate of appreciation or something like that. So oh, yeah. you're already down the rabbit hole by that point. Yeah. I wonder how many people framed those and, and still have them. Mm, they should be tracked and on a list. Oh, yeah, that's good. Well, they are actually on on a list. Yeah, somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So halfway there, guys. (laughs) Um, As far as I know, the other games in the series were quite similar in terms of gameplay. I think they had different minigames, and I I think that the hints worked in sort of the same way. Kind of, you get numbers, you're referred to the comic, and you find hidden uh, clues. And... According to the form included with Earthworld, the contestants' travel expenses, meals, and lodgings were all covered by Atari. Oh, wow. And if the contestant was under 18, Atari will also pay for an accompanying parent or guardian. Hmm. I th- they really went all in. I think this shows how ambitious the whole thing was. <laughs> hmm. um, and one last thing before we move on. I-, I thought at first that this is wildly ambitious, like maybe a bit over the top. And that setting everything up and giving away all the prizes that we'll get to in a second must have been a huge waste of money, but I guess it worked because Earthworld, the first game, sold half a million copies Holy at crap. I think $35 each. So yeah, I think it, it's worked. Good. It worked out for them, yeah. Anyway, the Earthworld competition included playing a modified version uh, of the game. You had 90 minutes to play the game, and the first player to finish the game was crowned the winner. That sounds intense. Yeah. Let's talk about the prizes, which is maybe the most fun part in this story. So, the prize for the Earthworld competition was the Talisman of Penultimate Truth, an 18-carat solid gold disc studded with 12 diamonds and the birthstone of the 12 zodiac signs bearing a miniature white gold sword. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, this is where it gets kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, that's something to go to to a ball yeah. with, <laughs> and and that kind of 
misses the the audience of the game i think <laughs> i don't know i i think geeks would love uh a talisman uh a, pen, a, a talisman of penultimate truth it, it sounds so geeky yeah it's a it's a great collectible that's yeah good, that's for sure it's better than a nintendo amiibo or uh The, the little Jimmy Page guitar you have in your office, Peter? Yeah, what about it? This is it's better. It's better than... It's, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you throwing shade? Are you saying the talisman is better than the double-neck Gibson SG? 25,000 solid gold penultimate truth talisman? Yeah, it's, it's better than a replica guitar. <laughs> <laughs> the, the prize for the Fireworld competition was the Chalice of Light, a platinum... And gold goblet studded with diamonds rubies sapphires pearls and green jade that looks pretty cool <laughs> uh, again a bit over the top <laughs> I, I like that one better because you can actually But, drink out of it. Yeah. <laughs> like imagine drinking your morning beer. tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so if you're following along with the presentation you can see pictures of these magnificent prizes but I'm sorry to say that for the next prizes there are no pictures uh, and the reason for that will become you evident uh, the prize for the water world competition was the crown of life a solid gold crown decorated with diamonds rubies sapphires and aquamarines and the planned prize for the air world competition was the philosopher's stone is it am I am I getting a bit um, sort of too into it or is is philosopher's stone like is there is JK in trouble here are we pressing a lawsuit or yeah she didn't make that up it's kind of a standard right is it I think so. I'm not sure. I mean, you can use three words in a row. Um, no one's patented the words, <laughs> the philosopher's stone. That's weird, though. Like, that's, it looks completely different, though, from like, you haven't actually put the actual image, but you've put like some sort of like, you know, historical DNA evidence, like yeah, remapping yeah. of it. And like, it looks different. Yeah. I, it's, uh, what we're seeing here is a... Uh, Kind of a drawing of the the box that would hold the philosopher's stone and the philosopher's stone is a large piece of white jade in an 18 carat gold box encrusted with emeralds rubies and diamonds Fuck. yeah <laughs> that's, that's something that's something so weird to give to 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 geek, a nerd. To geeks, yeah <laughs> oh my god imagine having the box and losing the stone on the way home to I would only imagine that if you collect all the items, all the prizes from all the sword quests, then you will be finally able to lose your virginity or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's still the ultimate prize to be won by the winner of the grand finale, which was the sword of ultimate sorcery. It had a silver blade and an 18 carat gold handle. Which was covered with diamonds emeralds sapphires and rubies I like the image you've put for the um the sword it's like um it's like a it's like a photo of Sasquatch you know this could <laughs> yeah. be it like we're not we're not a hundred percent the sure only confirmed sighting yeah, yeah even not confirmed <laughs> like but given the time this picture was taken it was probably like the best camera they had and like they were like yeah. oh wow look at the detail and stuff and now we're like squinting like it could be it could be a sword like <laughs> is it even a sword yeah <laughs> um yeah Okay, right, so let's talk about the competitions. The Earthworld competition was the first one to be held. 5,000 entries were received for the Earthworld uh, puzzle, but only eight were correct, hmm. which is kind of weird. Eight, only eight were correct because it's really not that hard. The first thing I think about that is like, if only eight out of 5,000 were correct, 
it's it's possible that none of them none of the eight actually knew the like any of the prime number stuff like because <laughs> you think about like if it's only eight out of five thousand there would be some that would just get it by chance like would have all the words but didn't know the prime number yeah. thing and would just get it by stumbled chance stumbled upon the correct words so it's yeah. pretty likely that most of those eight probably didn't know it so yeah and the competition took place in May of 1983, and Stephen Bell was the winner of the contest, and he won the Talisman of Penultimate Truth. It is said that the answer needed to enter the Fireworld competition was much easier because 73 people have solved it, uh, up from eight. And to filter out the contestants for practicality, Atari asked each of the contestants to write a short essay about what they liked about the game. and <laughs> They didn't spend much time on that, did they? They, they were no, like, quick meeting, guys. What should we do? Essay of why they like the game. Great, yeah, let's go. Yeah, them write an essay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have read those essays. Like, they had 73 video game nerds write about why they like a very geeky video game, which... Like, uh, you want to win a, the, the, the Chalice of Light? Yeah, fucking write an essay. I, I wish I could have read those I'm essays. I'm not sure if they should be in museums or burned. <laughs> um, and out of those 73 competitors, they filtered out 50 uh, competitors. The Fireworld competition took place in January of 1984, and Michael Rideout was the winner of that competition. He won the Chalice of Light. So, two, two contestants... Two moustaches. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think uh... <laughs> that was it. Continue. <laughs> yeah. You found you found the conspiracy theory behind as it. A, as anyway, a... <laughs> well done. It's not. It's not. Uh... It's not. It's not about the gold goblet. It's about the moustaches of the holders. Uh. <laughs> as a person who can't do the moustache thing, I'm just. I'm like, hmm, what is going on here? Like, there must be something you feel left out. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> yeah, no, no one wants to admit, but that's how they filtered out the contestants. Yeah, I, I, I think this um, Michael Routout, he, he looks much nerdier than the first guy. The first guy yeah. looks like he could have been on Baywatch on a good day. Yeah, but this guy's, this guy's like proper nerd. Baywatch <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> you sir are very generous. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty buff. Go back, go back for the the previous one. Stephen Bell. He looks cool for 19, 1983. That's, that's that's because of his shirt, and he's literally standing on a platform that says Atari, surrounded by the, zodiac, the zodiac signs. Yeah, holding holding a golden arm amulet. Uh, Don't forget that. The talisman of penultimate truth. <laughs> Why not the ultimate truth? I, I don't yeah, know. Let's that's, not get into that. <laughs> that's a wrinkle, isn't it? It's almost the ultimate truth. That's mm. actually very odd. I think they just like the word, the, the, the big word, penultimate. Yeah. It sounded good to them. I would have to think so. They're yeah. not holding back. Like, all the names of this thing, they're not like, well, oh, actually, I don't know if it's that truthful. Maybe we'll just scale it back one, guys. <laughs> yeah. I think, it's, I think it's like they were looking for, like, you know, three-syllable word, and like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were afraid of lawsuits, you know, <laughs> like for someone to come and say, "Well, this isn't the ultimate truth." Yeah, well, it's <laughs> yeah. Ultimate. yeah, it's okay. Anyway, after the Fireworld contestant, something happened that made Atari change all of their plans, and that is the video game crash of 1983. Like I said, the SwordQuest games and the competitions were supposed to take place in 1983 and 1984. And I don't know if you've heard about the 1983 video game crash, but it is mentioned in the high score uh, documentary on Netflix. And 
from the name alone, you can tell that it probably wasn't a step in the right direction for the industry as a whole, um, and that it took place at the same time as everything related to SwordQuest. And I'm not going to go too deeply into this, um, because it's a whole different subject of its own. I'm going to go over it briefly, and then we'll go back and see how it affected the story of SwordQuest. So, between 83 and 85, the video game industry as a whole, and the home consoles market specifically, experienced uh, a major crash. And the two main factors uh, that have led to the crash were, were these. Uh, the first was market saturation. The home console market seemed so successful at the time, and despite warnings from a few economists who said that there were signs of market failure, Home console production was in full steam ahead mode, basically. As far as I've read, in 1983, demand was up by 100% from 1982, but manufacturing was up by 175%, and that's just not a viable strategy. And the second factor was the fact that personal computers were becoming popular and relatively cheap at the time. Let's focus in a bit on the, the market situation for factor first. So Atari's success in the home console market has paved the way for a bunch of other companies to enter the market. And unlike today, back then, each console manufacturer would also create the game for its own system. So it's as if only Sony would make games for the PS and only Microsoft would make games for the Xbox. And Blizzard, Ubisoft, Capcom, EA, none of these would really exist. And that changed in 1979, when four programmers from Atari decided to leave the company and start a new company called Activision. Hey, I've heard of that. Yeah, I must have played a bunch of their games, especially when I was younger. I remember having, like, most of the games had, you know, the, the Activision logo on the startup screen. Anyway, the, the programmers left Atari and started Activision, mostly because they weren't credited for their work, and they weren't paid based on the sales of the games. And... Atari was owned by Warner Communications at the time, and the programmers wanted to be treated like creators from other uh, Warner Communications branches. They, they wanted to be paid like, like musicians, like directors, like actors. They basically wanted to be compensated for their work, which I think makes sense. Um, and Activision's programmers had experience with the, the Atari 2600 console, so they created, manufactured, and sold games that would work on that system. And naturally, Atari tried to legally block Activision's uh, products from reaching the market. But long story short, in 1982, Atari had to settle. And Activision, in return, had agreed to pay royalties on games they were selling. And this opened the door uh, for third-party game development, which obviously led to a massive boom in third-party game developers. A lot of companies wanted to recreate Activision's success by developing and selling games for Atari's consoles and any other console that was on the market. It was much easier to develop games for a console that was already in stores than develop a whole new thing and, and create games for that as well. But the lack of experience in programming and the fact that they were, you know, they were rushing game development in an attempt to grab market share Many of those games were of very low quality and the market was being wildly flooded with awful games. And stores were flooded with physical products and couldn't find enough space to display or store all of the games or the different consoles and they couldn't sell them so they tried returning them to the publishers and the publishers couldn't replace the products or refund the retailers and many of the publishers had to fold. And Games that were brand new and initially sold for $35 were sold at discount prices at around $5, which is a seventh of the original price. 
And Atari's share of the cartridge game market has dropped from 75% in 81% to 40% in 82%. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's a huge drop. And the home console market was, you know, it was still a relatively new thing. And consumers who didn't really know any better, they were drawn to games that had attractive price tags instead of buying games of higher quality. And the industry as a whole just got a bad, bad reputation. So as I mentioned, the second major factor was the rise of personal computers. And by 1982, desktop computers could play more sophisticated games with better graphics and sound quality in comparison to home consoles due to faster processors and expanded memories. And personal computers' prices have dropped by then to a point in which they were you know, able to compete with home consoles. And people were attracted to them for their versatility because you could play games on them, maybe even better games, and then use them as word processors and home accounting machines. And also they had writable storage capabilities, which meant that you could actually save your progress in a game, something you couldn't do on a home console. Ooh, uh, so I'm not sure if I told you guys, but um, I had a GameCube back in the day, um, my first console. Um, I'm young. <laughs> but um, played Simpsons Hit and Run, and I played the shit out of that game. That was that was just the most fantastic game I've ever played. And um, like I, I don't know what happened, but I lost a memory card oh. or something. So for about a month, I <laughs> like I must have been on holidays or something, but I had to play through every level to get to the level I wanted to play every day. Oh. So I would play I think I would play through at least level four, which I believe was the second I think it was the either but maybe Bart's level or something like that. But um yeah, so I'd play for like four hours to get to the point and then and then i just start playing like where i was at and having fun on the level and stuff like that it was absolutely insane like it just i cannot believe my commitment to that game but yeah when so. it comes to video games kids are so so <laughs> dedicated they'll do anything i miss being so dedicated to something like yeah that, but yeah. yeah. So, I like nowadays, it. I would just wait to get a memory card. I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play oh, through that's the whole crazy. game. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. <laughs> so anyway, at that time, revenues in the home console market dropped from 3.2 billion dollars in 1983 to 100 thousand dollars in 1985, which is just under 97 percent. It's it's a wild. That's drop. amazing. A bunch of companies had to shut down. Uh, most of the others were severely affected by the video game crash. And Atari, which are the stars of this SideQuest episode of ours, have done something somewhat iconic in response to the video game crash. Um, in 1982, they produced a large amount of video game cartridges. Um, they didn't foresee the, the coming recession, and they were naturally expecting to sell well. Um, but due to low sales, Atari ended up physically burying a large amount of excess stock in September of 1983 near Alamogordo, <laughs> New Mexico. That's when you know things aren't going well, <laughs> yeah, you know? When you have to bury everything like, you've done. Hey, boss, uh, we just buried about 100,000 cartridges. Is, is, is everything all right on the back end? It's more towards the 700,000 cartridges. <laughs> oh, jeez. Over half a million cartridges, they just buried them. Like, they, they couldn't sell those games, and the most practical solutions they, they, they came up with is to just bury everything. <laughs> That's amazing. And in 2014, a dig-up of those cartridges took place, and there's a documentary made about it called Atari Game Over, which I think is totally worth a watch. It, it's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Kind of sad. But mm. um, <laughs> at that point, many people believed that, you know, that was the end of home consoles. The, the, 
the crash was massive uh, 97% drop in revenues it's 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 wild I think in that uh, Atari game over uh, documentary a lot of people said that you know Atari was a major part of their life and then just suddenly they just weren't around anymore and no one knew why anyway the the video game crash of 1983 is considered to be the end of the first generation of home consoles and the beginning of the second generation which started with Nintendo's entry into the American market with their Um, Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES and the NES was released in 1985 and it was the American variant of the Japanese Famicom which was released in 1983 and Nintendo were smart to plan their entertainment system with the lessons from the video game crash in mind for example they limited the production of third-party video games and they used a seal of quality on the products that met their quality standards and they designed the NES to be front-loading to kind of remind people of the VCR machines which were very popular at the time and they called it an entertainment system instead of a home console to kind of differentiate it a bit I remember that when the ps2 came there was a built-in DVD player inside of it and I thought oh wow that's a uh... That's such a fine bargain. Yeah. You, you get a real entertainment system because you can also watch movies. I think the NES came with, you know, it came with the light gun and there was a robot that you can buy and attach to it and play games with. Uh, they had a bunch of accessories to kind of convince toy stores to sell the NES because no one wanted to sell consoles anymore. So they had to show, no, there's a bunch of accessories and other stuff that, that you can buy for it. It's, it's a toy. It's not a home console. Like the market was really bad at the time and they really had to work hard to, to be even a part of it. Anyway, let's get back to Sword Quest. Let's talk about Sword Quest after the video game crash of 1983. Because obviously the video game crash affected the whole industry and Atari and Sword Quest included. So with Atari's market share dropping and having over manufactured a bunch of games, Atari found themselves in, in quite a tough spot. Um, they had to do anything they could to try and recover and the sword quest series was directly impacted by it the the airworld game the the fourth in the series was flat out cancelled and the waterworld game was released but only a very small number of cartridges were manufactured um, the game cartridge is now considered to be very rare I looked it up on eBay I found a few selling for around 270 dollars at the moment which is You know, it's a lot of money, but it doesn't sound like a wild number to me. Yeah. And the Airworld competition, along with the game, again, was, was just cancelled. And the grand finale as well. Um, but that wasn't the end of, of, of the story. Because Atari couldn't just cancel the game and count their losses. Because due to the fact that Waterworld was promoted with a promise of a prize-bearing competition, you know, that was a major selling point which helped in selling the game. Um, Atari were legally required to hold the contest. Also, they were still required to at least compensate the early winners um, as they were promised a place in the grand final competition. And Stephen Bell and Michael Rideout, which were uh, the winners of the first two competitions, they were awarded with a compensation prize, $15,000, and Atari 7800, which was, at the time, Atari's upcoming system. And to save as much money as they could, Atari only accepted answers for the Waterworld puzzle from people who were members of the game's fan club. Um, and still, most of those were told that they just didn't qualify. It is said that Atari um, held a secret contest with the qualifying members of the club, and the crown of life is... There's a rumor that it was awarded, but the winner was asked to remain anonymous. Uh, 
And I'll note that Atari might have not awarded the winner the crown itself. They could have awarded the winner uh, with a cash price of an equal worth. So we don't really know what took place there. Now, because the first two prizes were definitely real um, and they were actually given out, a lot of people assumed that the last three prizes were already manufactured as well. And also, there were eyewitnesses that claimed to have seen the Philosopher's Stone and the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. Oh, this is getting very Sasquatchy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they were supposedly, the, the, the sword and the stone were supposedly on display during the earlier competitions. It is very Sasquatchy. <laughs> Um, so obviously a lot of people are interested in knowing where are all the prizes today. And the first prize, the Talisman of Penultimate Truth, is going to be disappointing. Stephen Bell, the, the, the guy who won the first competition, the, the rumor says that he's melted down the, the talisman and sold it for its value, which is kind of really disappointing, I think. It is said that Bell kept the small sword that was attached to the talisman. Kind of sad. And the second prize, the Chalice of Light, is confirmed as of 2017 to still be in the possession of Rideout, the winner of the Fireworld competition. It was confirmed that it keeps it in a safety deposit box to this day. I'm, I'm proud of him. Good work. And the fate of the Crown of Life is unknown. As I've mentioned, it was either awarded to the winner of the Waterworld contest, which is anonymous, or um, kept with the Philosopher's Stone and the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. Because technically, the prizes that weren't given out, if they were ever made, were the property of Warner Communications, the company that owned Atari. And some believe that Warner returned the prizes to Franklin Mint, who manufactured them. And, you know, there are rumors that this is indeed what happened and that they were melted to be reused and they're non-existent today. But there's another rumor that is believed to be less probable, but in a way <laughs> much more attractive, that, that says that Jack Trammell, the owner of... Commodore International, who bought Atari in 1984, kept the prizes for himself. These rumors are based on the fact that some members of the Atari staff said that they saw the sword, uh, they saw a sword that looks similar to the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery mounted on Tremel's living room wall. And if Tremel had the sword, it's probable that he also kept the stone and the crown. Kurt Vendel, an Atari historian, thinks that it's very unlikely that Tremel kept the sword or the other prizes. He also said that the sword in Tremel's home was a Tremel family heirloom and that it has nothing to do with the Atari games. And let's talk about Sword Quest today. Um, today, you know, the story is not wildly known, as I've mentioned. I'm very interested in the history of the video game industry, and it took me a while to stumble upon this story. Like, I think that today, I might be wrong, but I think that most people are interested in everything that came after the NES was released in America, you know, with Mario and Zelda and all that other stuff. But Sword Quest is still out there, technically. You can play the Sword Quest games today and a bunch of other Atari games by buying the Atari Vault. This is not a, <laughs> a promotion or uh, of any sort. <laughs> we don't make commission off it here no, at the Coach not Quest. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> um, and the Atari Vault, uh, every once in a while, it drops in price. I got it for $2, and you can play the games, you can enjoy all the horrible sounds that they make. Like, walking through a door in the Earthworld game sounds like you're being eaten by a digital monster. It's horrible. <laughs> you can read the comics uh, with the Atari Vault. You can go through the manuals, which I had a lot of fun doing. It's really interesting stuff. 
the story of Sword Quest of the Sword Quest competitions are the basis for the 2017 fictional comic series called Sword Quest, which follows one of the contestants 30 years after the original competitions as he's trying to obtain the grand prize. The comics are available on Comixology, which is a service I used to read the Transformers comics uh, we read a while back. Again, no commission? No, not at all. <laughs> Wait, so so they may, so in this comic, there's an actual player who played in the competition and is now after the actual treasures, the prizes? Yeah, something like that. It's, cool. it's all of the... All of the characters are fictional. I don't think they're real people from the, the 80s. And yeah, there's a story about, you know, the, the grand prize is still out there for some reason. You can still go out and get it somehow. I don't, I don't know. I didn't really get into that. I might read it someday. I see a bit of like a, some recommendation, but it's by Patton Oswalt, the actor. That's interesting. Ooh. I didn't know he... I didn't notice have, that. Yeah, I didn't know he read like stuff like that, but that's, that's cool. Yeah, he, he's kind of the king of the geeks. Uh, if if anyone would read this, it's it'd be Ben Oswald. I love him. I love his stuff. I love his stand up comedy. Oh really? I haven't um I haven't really got into him that much, but um, pretty good. Seen him on a few things. And also, the original Sword Quest series is mentioned in the Ready Player One book and movie, which is kind of cool. I don't remember where it's mentioned in the book, but I I mentioned it earlier. I watched the the movie last week to kind of hunt down the the Sword Quest uh, reference and. Ah, it, it was a lot of fun. I think they mentioned it by name and also showed uh, the 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 game for a couple of seconds in the middle Ooh, of it. That's very. In cool. what co- in what context? Do you remember the the last puzzle that you need to uh, go through to get into the holiday egg or whatever it's yeah. called? You have to play an Atari Twenty Six Hundred game, and they have like a bunch of Sixers, I think they're called, the bad guys, just standing in line trying all kinds of games, and there's the you know the the people who are back in the office space or mm. whatever it's called that they're you know the kind of the people who study the pop culture and stuff and they're like going over a list of atari games and one of them you know says it has to be pong it has to be that i mean have we tried this game have we tried that game and then in the background you hear one of the uh oologists, i think they're called is kind of yells out we should try uh, the Sword Quest games. They actually had prizes. It must be them. And that's it. Oh, okay. But they, they do reference some game. Yeah, the game that you have to, they actually used in order to win is called Adventure, which is the first game that had uh, an Easter egg in it. Uh, I think it came out in 1979. Adventure, what a generic name for a game. <laughs> and... <laughs> If you go through an invisible wall with an invisible dot that you pick up at some point, you get to a screen with the name of the creator of the game. Because, like I said, they weren't credited. The 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 name of the creator of the game didn't go out with the game. There wasn't a credit scene at the end of the game. Just kind of weird. So he literally hid his name in the game. Hmm. Hmm. Let's talk about a few conclusions and thoughts. Well, I guess Ready Player One is is uh, as close as it gets, but it's it's surprising that there isn't a movie specifically about those Sword Quest treasures. I mean, it hmm. sounds like a real <laughs> like a, a quest in real life. I would imagine that all those items can open a portal and then, I don't know. It could be a lot of fun to do something like that today. Like a movie about mm. something like that with a bunch of adventures in the way. Because, you know, technology is much better today. The The competitions that 
um, Atari or whatever company could come up with today could be much more fun. Especially because, like, with this lockdown and stuff like that, that would be awesome Ooh, to have, like, an online, true. like, global thing. Everyone's, like, talking about it. Like the World Cup or something Ooh. like that. World yeah, Cup that movie. could be a lot of fun. But something general, not like Call of Duty championships or anything like that. Just yeah. something very cool. Yeah. I I have to say, as, as far, like, I've read about this for a while now. I've watched a bunch of videos or documentaries about the, you know, the, the period of time in the gaming industry. And I kind of wonder what the video game industry would have looked like if the, the video game crash was avoided. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I kind of imagine that if all of the Sword Quest competitions would have been held, yeah, like it would have become a major name in video games, right? Because they're giving out all the prizes and the sword and, and five different competitions with uh, a lot of people uh, participating. I don't know. I really would have liked to see how the video game industry would, would have looked like with that occurring. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm not sure if there's a lot to take away from this story. Like, I I mentioned it at the beginning. It's not like the story about the Anthropocene with a bunch of philosophy and, and, and smaller topics to discuss within it. But here, I don't know. You know, of course, there's the nothing lasts forever or don't put all your eggs in one basket lesson. But I, I don't know. Other than that, I can't think of too much I'll take from this. It's... It's just a fun story that I enjoyed reading about. Um, mm. and, and, you know, the fun I had was more than enough to have been worth my time. Like, yeah. I don't think that every story has to have a huge lesson behind it. And it's it's kind of interesting to compare that period of time to today because, I don't know, I think it all took place when the video game industry was still really new and kind of unstable or untested. Like, today, video game consoles are a huge market. And, you know, home consoles today are still in a way, weaker machines in comparison with desktop computers. And they they mm. don't offer the the some of the extra functionality that computers offer. But maybe just because of that, people buy consoles, uh, a, a lot of consoles. Like, you don't, you don't have to know how to operate them. They just work most of the time flawlessly. And, you know, also, not only are home consoles a huge market, major events are being held around video games and esports around the world. Yeah. Like... There's a lot of stuff going on. I kind of, now that you say it, Peter, I kind of wish there was one big global competition to take part in. But, I don't know, maybe one day. I don't know. I guess back then, you know, uh, in 92, 93, when Sword Quest took place and the, the, the video game crash took place, the industry just wasn't as stable as it is today. Like, there were still mistakes to make and growing pains to go through. And Sword Quest maybe just happened in the wrong time. I know. How are you guys feeling about the PS5 and the Xbox Series X? Is it called? I don't know what they're calling it anymore. <laughs> they, they've screwed up the names there. When they went from 360 to 1. Yeah, and then 1X and 1S, and now it's Series X and Series S or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's all very confusing, but I'm I'm very excited about them. I'm not going to get one soon, but maybe down the line, because I, I, I can't see myself finding the time to play them you know it's, yeah but they look amazing they look so much fun the, the graphics are wild and it i heard there's no basically no loading screens which is a dream you know i get excited about consoles because i've never been a pc guy i've i always like consoles just being for games you know like because i spend a lot of time on the computer at work and i just want to like i still like to play video games you know but I just, I'd rather go and play with like an interesting controller and sort yeah. of like the interface. 
user experience. They're literally game machines. They are, yeah. And I I've always enjoyed that. And um, I think um, I will probably I'd say I almost definitely will get one, but I'm not going to get one until I find a game that I really want. You know, like um, this is a bit of the consumerism stuff that I'm sort of getting into, or you know, the minimalism thing, but. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I might wait till, um, there's a, there, there's a game coming out in 2021 about, um, Harry Potter and that's probably, oh, really? I, yeah, it's, um, oh. I, th- I, it's, um, it's based, I believe it's the past, um, like before Harry was born. I believe that, uh, but I could be wrong, but, um, yeah, it just looks amazing. Like you can choose like what house you're in and all that stuff. And, mm. um, yeah, so I'll probably get one. I don't know if I get the PS5 or Xbox. I don't really have too, too big of a connection or that I've always liked yeah. the Xbox controller a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so I'll probably get it when that comes out. I'll try to get like one of those deals where you can get like their Harry Potter colored machine or something like yeah. that. And, or, <laughs> you know, you get like a special controller or something with like Harry Potter on it. So that would be, that would be ideal. But Is that the Hogwarts Legacy game? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looks looks, looks really fun. So, yeah. and especially it should be like really snappy with the next gen consoles as oh, well. Yeah. yeah. I really wanted to get a Nintendo Switch. It seems to like, like a lot of fun, but... I don't, I still didn't. Maybe I will. I got one but... during lockdown. Yeah. Do you use it in portable mode a lot? Well, I actually, sorry, I got the light, so it's only in portable mode. And oh, cool. I love, I love it in portable mode. I've got a few games. I had um, Super Smash Bros, which I played with a few friends. I'm not mm-hmm. the biggest on it, but like it's, it's just a lot of fun, you know, talking to friends on Discord and then playing um but i i got it and i played a lot of rocket league where you drive around cars and then you try to hit like this soccer ball into like this big soccer pitch and that was just so much fun it's like a sports game but then also not a sports game it it, it's just so much fun and um obviously i played firewatch yeah um on the switch which is great like as i said i just love like being able to like lie down and 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 play like I don't know. There's something about like sitting in a chair which doesn't relax me that much. I like to yeah. sort of like lie down, put my feet up, and stuff. So I don't know. I went through the list of games on Switch, and there's a few I'd love to play: the Mario Odyssey, and the Zelda yeah. Breath of the Wild. But there's the not list a lot. Isn't too long, so it's I, not, yeah, yeah, I just didn't get it yet. Maybe one day. I don't know because they're still releasing a bunch of games. They are. Yeah, yeah. I got Mario um, Kart as well because you have to get that basically by law i love that game it's it's not an amazing game (laughs) i really suck at it i'm like particularly bad at it (laughs) this is going to be episode 34 which um the first side quest was 17 so i think the next side quest is going to be 51 yeah episode 51 that'll be after our special 50th episode oh that's crazy man Let's see if we get there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound encouraging, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we can do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Next episode, we've mentioned it and we introduced the subject. Last episode, uh, we're going to uh, talk about Gris, a video game. Uh, I think it's an indie video game from a Spanish developer. Do you remember anything about that, Peter? I think it's Spanish, yeah, because Gris... Yeah. Well, actually, no, I'm not quite sure because... It was um, Gris is Spanish for gray, um, so that's where the Spanish bit comes from. But I think it was a oh no no you're you're right sorry just ignore all that that is a Spanish indie developer Nomada yeah. Studios and Blitworks 
Yes, yeah, that's the one. So thank you, Peter, and thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Right, See ya. Right. The Culture Quest Podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All the People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a, um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W-E, double L dot org. So it's, it's a dot org. So it's, it's legit. And, um, basically they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity. So obviously we'll give money to friends and family if they fall on hard times. But if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to, um, charities, it's definitely best to do your research because, a lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorized eight charities. So out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorized only eight. And I think it's really good to just scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but, you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So this is probably one of the best evidence-based ways to do that. So, yeah, so definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering and hopefully those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So anyway, this is not formal advice, but it's just good place to go. Thank you. Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.